Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Alex Hillman. Alex is a pioneer who's made it his mission to help independent creatives build sustainable careers. He started this in 2006 when he co-founded Indie Hall, Philadelphia's first co-working space, which helped kickstart the global co-working boom that has since exploded. In 2009, he followed this up by establishing Stacking the Bricks with Amy Hoy, where they teach creative people how to bootstrap their own businesses. Alex and I got together because he has a new book that's coming out, which is called The Tiny MBA, which is an insightful and short collection of lessons about the long game of business, which is exactly what we talk about in this conversation. I loved the book. You can read it in less than 45 minutes. And in this conversation, we talk about a bunch of things like what does it look like to bring intentionality to our careers, to be able to connect the dots between starting with you know where we are with what we have and the long-term aspirations and impact that we want to create. What are the mindsets that we can cultivate that will help us to have balance and equanimity in the face of uncertainty and having no control, which if there's anything that 2020 has taught us, it's that we don't have control. And we also start quite unexpectedly with exploring some ideas from Buddhist teachings and how they practically apply to having a business career that's fulfilling. As I believe you'll hear in this conversation, Alex is a super generous and caring person with his knowledge and his experience, and he loves nothing more than to hear about how these ideas are helping you to level up. We actually both have a request, which is, please let us both know what resonated with you. You can email alex at alex at tiny.mba and copy me at andrew at makethingsthatmatter.com. We're both super interested in hearing what resonated with you and what stuck with you after this. Now, this was a really fun conversation that I think is going to help you cultivate continuity in your efforts and invest in yourself so that you can play the long game of business to benefit yourself and everyone around you. So with all of that, I give you Alex Hillman. So Alex, officially, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing really, really good. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about a lot of the ideas in the book, The Tiny MBA. I actually thought we'd start somewhere a little bit different. There is something that I discovered about you that I had no idea that I think we share, which is it sounds like we both have a pretty strong Buddhist influence on our thinking. You talk about a book that was really powerful for you in your own journey called The Essential Yoga Sutra. One of the things I thought it'd be fun to start with is to talk about those ideas, in particular, how they play out in reality of leading a life in the world and having a career and friendships and all the quote unquote like worldly attachments that can be so problematic when, when one starts to sit with these ideas. Oh, wow. I'm so glad you're starting here. I mean, there's there's two things that come to mind. The first one is kind of broad, but I think something that is livable in every minute of every day and maybe like more relevant now than any time in your or my lifespan, which is really coming to terms with how little you actually control and how the only thing you really can do the vast majority of the time is control your reaction and I, I got a lot of that from the study and from that book in particular. And to go a little more narrow into some of the things that I, I still to this day think about from my very first read through that book is separating what happened from the story about what happened and how quickly the story morphs the further you get away from whatever the incident is. And so like, you know, we are meaning making machines. We observe a thing, whether that's our true lived experience or something happening off in the distance. And 
nearly instantly we're making up all kinds of things that are not actually on the page, so to speak, about what happened and, you know, trying to associate things that happened in our, you know, past lived experiences. It's just these pattern making, pattern recognition things and how powerful that can be for good and equally powerful like to our own detriment or otherwise. So, you know, I think at the heart of the the practice for me is the constant reminder that what I'm feeling and what meaning I'm making about it is is real in my head and my feelings are real but are not necessarily the same as the very thing that I am perceiving and that is extra true the further away from the thing it actually is. Well, there's two ideas that I think are especially salient. One in our careers and one just in 2020. The 2020 one is we really have no control. Like we thought, you know, my God, we thought we had some control. And like, if there has ever been a lesson for this year, it's that is bullshit. Boy, is that true. I'm curious, like what, what practices do you find helpful? We crave the sense of certainty so badly as humans in a reality that does nothing but constantly change. That could be kind of frustrating. And not only that, but it makes planning anything really hard. Everything is just changing. And and I think to your point, it's really pushed the degree to which uncertainty shows up. I guess the trick is, is like, how do you live not paralyzed? How do you live with the uncertainty and make a choice anyway? And how do you frame choices at a scale where the worst case scenario is the plans change? Because they could, or maybe we can go so far as say they will. And you are okay. Early on in the pandemic, I I tweeted out something to the effect of, you know, we've all just been signed up for a marathon, but we don't know how long we have to run. And that tweet went pretty viral, but also, I mean, for, for, for reasons that I think it resonated with a lot of folks, they're like, why am I so stressed out? Besides the obvious reasons. And I think it's like coming to grips with this being an endurance game is not the same as... This is an endurance game for an unknown period of time, an unknown level of complication and challenge. So being kind to yourself and being, you know, saying like just calibrating expectations, like it's okay to get it wrong. In fact, I'd rather set my default to I'm going to make a guess right now and be pleasantly surprised when I'm right. It has kind <laughs> of like helped reframe a lot of things and you know, that doesn't work for everything, but Maybe the the biggest solace in all of this is also knowing that I'm not the only one going through it. Like this is a talk about a, a a shared lived experience, although everyone is going through their own personal versions of this. And many people are going through a version that's so much worse than anything I'm experiencing. I'm so fortunate and privileged to have the comfort that I have and the safety that I have and the family and the people and and even just the financial resources to to not be stressed out in all of the extra ways that are for many people the primary ways. So, you know, staying grateful for that too is is I think part of the reality calibration that I'm constantly playing with. Yeah, no, I totally hear you on that. So the second idea that I, I'm especially curious to get your take on, this goes along the lines of that long-term thinking you're talking about, right? Where we think about, you know, outcomes. Where are we trying to get to? What, what results are we trying to create? I found myself grappling with tension between that idea of being oriented towards an outcome 
And in like the fine line between that and getting attached to it, if you start to dig into the philosophy underneath Buddhism, one of the misconceptions I had was that suffering comes from desire, which is actually kind of a for anyone who has not spent time looking at this. One of the hints that I've learned is that many of the confusing bits about this are translation <laughs> errors because we're a couple languages. We're like three steps away from the original language. And so the original word for this in the texts is tanha, which does not actually really mean desire as we use it in English. It's something closer to craving or thirst, which is it's this compulsion, this helpless, like you can't help it. But that is to be distinguished from what, what might be referred to as like a wholesome desire, like a positive desire. Thinking about these ideas of like attachment and desire and outcomes all at the same time. How have you, how do you think about navigating that? So when I think about choosing that kind of orientation, I tend to start less with an outcome. An outcome might be part of like the, the, the mental exercise of figuring out what it looks like and maybe most importantly to communicate it. But for me, the outcome is more of an orientation, a bearing or a North Star. And because a lot of my work through most of my career has been collaborative, uh, whether it's creating a, a community like Indie Hall, building teams around software technology products, really, I mean, and, and any number of other things, even just like selling a consulting project to a client, I might use an concrete outcome to kind of, you know, you got to bait the hook for the fish you want to catch. But when we're actually getting down to the work, there's, there's sort of a, you, you follow the through line from where we are through the outcome to where is the outcome actually getting us? Like, why does that outcome matter in the first place? And I think if you don't follow that that sort of line or that arc all the way through the concrete outcome to the maybe more existential, long-term North Star, more bearing-oriented. I think, like, for me, that's the sweet spot. To even say, I want to create a certain software product, which I think is a common thing. Even that contains something that is easy to become fixated and obsessed on, which is software versus a product, which can be a lot of things in a lot of formats that serves an audience towards a specific goal or potentially many goals, right? So one of the hard traits that we've, again, it's taken us like the better part of a decade to really figure out how to break people of that fixation, which is, it's sort of a version of the, you know, fall in love with the problem instead of the idea. I take that one step further. And it's like fall in love with the people who have the problem because that's not the only problem they'll ever have. And you might misunderstand the problem or by the time you create a thing, the problem might change or you might not be the best suited person to fix that problem. But there is another problem that you are better. It's like being too fixated on, on that thing puts on blinders from observable opportunities to do good and do well that are right under your nose and possibly easier, faster, more sustainable, whatever it might be to act on than the first thing that came to mind or the even the fifth thing. Like just keeping eyes wide open is hard in general. It's impossible the more fixated you become on an outcome. But the North Star approach, I think, lets you take you know, to use like a sailing analogy, you know, people set a bearing, but especially if you're sailing against the wind, you have to tack back and forth in order to go in the direction you want to go. When people are trying to do things that are metaphorically speaking against the wind, that back and forth may actually be the fastest way to get there, which is super counterintuitive and, and momentarily disorienting if all you can think about is the end destination rather than the 
near-term destination that gets you, you know, incrementally closer directionally to the thing that actually matters. No, I really love that. I spent a lot of time thinking about outcomes. You know, we had Josh Seiden on the show who like literally wrote the book, Outcomes Over Output. Where I've shaken out with it for now is, okay, I want to be outcome oriented as in like an orientation of directionality, but process focused. The outcome gives me like the directionality, that sort of sense of meaning. But then I got to come back to right here where I am. Like, what's the next step? What's the next goal? What's the next rhythm I got to execute on? And, and that seems to be kind of maybe a way to navigate this duality. I really like that. It reminds me of a, a term that I've heard used and I think fits what you just described, which is altitude shifting and how there are people who are really great high level strategic thinkers. And there are people who are really great detail oriented process thinkers and designers and executors. But there are far fewer people that are good at both. And there's even fewer people who can quickly zip between one and the other. And I think what you're describing, and I, th- and I think that's also a result of, you know, there's some aptitude, but there's also plenty of practice. Being able to be aware of which one you're in in that moment and recognize when you need to altitude shift to the next one and to have the muscle to emotionally maybe let go of one thing to create space for another allows you to do it faster than somebody who maybe the, the monkey brain keeps recycling that high level thinking and won't let you really focus on the small thing or the monkey brain has you so mired in the detail in the weeds that you struggle to get back to the big picture thinking. So I think that altitude shifting is, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's maybe another layer past that where you see your Dr. Manhattan, you see all things, you see, you see, you see time differently than everybody else, but the, I'm, I'm certainly not there. But I think the ability to oscillate between them quickly and on command is maybe a set of practices to strive for that is actually practicable. Yeah. That, I mean, it seems like a trainable superpower, right? I'm going to think about that a little bit more. So I think that's a perfect pivot point into talking more about the book. When you say the long game of business, what do you mean? I want to run a business that outlives me. I want to run a business that can still exist in a hundred years. And there's sort of two reasons for that. One is that I think it's not only possible, I think it's actually quite common. Um, we have multi-generational businesses in traditional business sense. You know, we're talking restaurants are often passed down through generations, a lot of brick and mortar, sometimes service businesses, the trades. And there's challenges and potentially problems with that. It's always confused me that the technology world, which is where I grew up and where I I really started my career in web development, in software, in software products and things on the internet, things are so fast and people are just like building for a quick flip or the, the fastest buck and there's no endurance. It's not even endurance makes, makes it sound more like a sport than it really is. There's no durability. Um, and it's always, I mean, everything is trade-offs. Everything in life is trade-offs. But in that, in that speed-based world, the trade-offs I've, I've saw early in my career just made me really confused about what people's priorities really were. And it made me really kind of anxious to be someone who felt like, in some cases, I felt like it was wrong. Right. People were doing things to other people in a business, you know, to work, uh, employers treat their employees is, you know, we're now seeing that, you know, widespread reckoning of that uh, in, in America, especially, but more broadly as well. And, you know, I experienced tiny versions of that, again, as a white man, so I can only really kind of imagine the multitudes, the depth and the the pain and trauma created when 
the person on the receiving end is anything but a white man, you know, but I see all of those things are, those are symptoms, I think, of a deeper cause of everything for speed, everything for growth, everything for the, the, the quick flip. And no one's really thinking about well, what could I build that has the ability to grow over time, provide value for all the people that are involved so that they, I mean, why wouldn't you want an employee who wants to be a part of your company for a decade, 15 years, 20 years longer. Like in family-based businesses, there are people stay in the business because it's family and they feel obligated sometimes. But when you've got employees, like I'm thinking about my friends at, at Wildbit, for instance, um, a software company here in Philadelphia. My friends, Chris and Natalie run it. And it's sad that Wildbit is an outlier in the technology world because they have multiple employees who have been a part of the business for over a decade, like 14 years. That's unheard of in small technology businesses. You know, there's people who have had a 20-year career at Microsoft, but that's already after Microsoft was a machine, right? It's a whole other story. So, you know, I think there's part of, part of the reason for the long business and why the long business and why this narrative is because when I was early in my career, it was really hard to find people. It was really hard to find examples that were counter to this dominant narrative of really what, what has been driven by Silicon Valley and Wall Street for the most part. And I feel very fortunate to have found and found early on people like Tara Hunt is one of the first people who comes to mind. We were talking about her before we started chatting today, who, you know, Tara and her business partner at the time, Chris, were the first successful professionals that I saw putting priority on the things that I thought should be valued, which is human connections and relationships, you know, finding a higher purpose that brings people together, co-creation, and all of these other things that really, I think, are critical foundational pieces to the long game. I watched them not only say it out loud, and they were some of the first people that I, I saw say it out loud, but they were successful doing it. And it suddenly made it less scary to say it out loud and, and maybe try it myself. So there's a goal in this book for me, which is if somebody reads this and you read something and you go, that's a thing I've always thought, but maybe this is the first time you've heard somebody not you say it out loud. I've been on the receiving end of that experience and know how powerful it was for me and how much it shaped me as a person and shaped my career. Like those are the experiences that I really want to hear from people when they read this book. And that's, you know, I want people to see that the long game of business is not only possible, but it is accessible and subtext like, it's normal, like the Silicon Valley outlook, the thing that, you know, Inc. and Entrepreneur and the, and like the news cycle talks about is is dominant narrative, but it's not dominant in existence. And I, I just want to try and contribute to a narrative that maybe can help bring the true dominant existence into view for more people to help them either realize that their ambitions and goals and their worldview and what they want and see as possible in business. I mean, it's a simple, it could be as simple as you can be in business without being turned into an evil maniac. Would be nice <laughs> to have some more examples of that out there in the world. And I don't think you can get that without taking a long view. I'm so glad you explained that. And, and it also makes me understand completely why we were introduced because we share that goal of really trying to affect what business is, what it's for and what it can be. That's very much central to my own long term 
aspirations. I, I went through a similar journey myself of, you know, I started my career in, in the tech, you know, the, the VC backed tech software world. And it, it's so baked into that world that you don't, it's almost like the David Foster Wallace essay, this is water. You don't even realize you're swimming in it. And until somehow you, you break away and you realize like, oh, wait, like I've been in a, in a container that worships at the altar of scale above all, <laughs> yeah. or is just aiming for the flip, like you said, right? And, and it's sadly few and far between that there's people creating things with real intentionality, like we're talking about here. So I, that's why I think the reason that I loved your book so much, and, and I highly recommend everyone get it. We're going to link this all in the show notes. It's a quick read. Honestly, you can read it in like 30 minutes on the couch, which I loved, by the way. It was like, oh, wow, you, you just, we did the thing that I wish every business book author did, where you just stripped <laughs> out all the bullshit and you just told me like, like you just cut the crap and you just told me they're, they're like the straight dope. You know? And it's like really short, really, I highlighted a bunch of stuff. And uh, I'm really glad you did that because it's like most business books should only be a long essay. And, you know, this was was beautifully done. Thank you. And what you just said is is right on the money. You end up with business books that are like 250 to 400 pages. You're going to invest two, three, four hours in reading each one, which isn't a bad thing. And frankly, for one really valuable idea is a great investment by my mind. But I kind of wanted to flip it around and say, you know, can we increase the surface area of number of useful things that you can take away in a very short period of time and how quickly even one or two of them could be useful. Basically, I get 100 shots at giving you something useful in 30 minutes, which is upping my odds of giving you something good. But it also ups the odds of those things being useful soon, right? And because it's only... 30 minutes, or even if you don't read it cover to cover, just like, you know, run your finger through it, pick a random page or two and read a couple things and see how it shows up for you that day. To be able to do that a couple times a year because it doesn't require you to like get into the whole game. My hope is that people, this is something that isn't necessarily a reference book in the way we think of a reference book where I go to look up a thing, but where I go when I want to sort of rejigger my brain a little bit and, or if I'm feeling stuck or slow or just like looking for some fresh perspective. A lot of them aren't necessarily a lesson in the explicit sense, although what my hope is you read it and it makes you think a thing or feel a way. And then if you interrogate that, something you will learn something. That is where the lesson comes from. So there are individual sparks for that sort of thinking. But it's the difference between jumping into a big open world video game that you're going to play for 40 hours. But if you put down somewhere, you'll feel guilty about it versus, you know, a mobile game. There's a reason Candy Crush is super successful. You could pick it up, play it for 20 seconds and put it down. My book might be the Candy Crush of business books. One can only hope <laughs> in terms of sales. And I hope that it has be a awesome. better impact on people's lives than Candy Crush has. But I think that's that's the differences. And that's even without considering just like, the world we live in now, the attention span people have, people want all different kinds of books. This book is only really a book in in the fun, in like the packaging in a lot of ways. It reads differently. The format is it's a feature and it might be one of the bigger features than is is obvious until you've gotten through it. Going back to this idea of like the long game, right? You know, there's a word that's been popping up in my mind as I've been sitting with and really leaning into a lot of this types of material. There's one page where you talk about service businesses are about a thousand times easier to start than product businesses, but they're a lot harder to grow past a certain threshold. Almost all the successful people I know started a service business, then raised rates to reclaim time and invested that in growing more durable revenue streams. I had been struggling with that idea a bit. 
everybody I think listening to the show cares about building the kind of business that you just described and that I'm also interested in seeing more of in the world. Maybe another way of saying what you're trying to say or a word that might sum it up, and I'm curious if this lands for you, is continuity. Mm, yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Where I struggled at first with this Daristap approach was like, oh, it can feel so frenetic or sporadic. Like, oh, I'll just I see this opportunity over here. I'll go do that thing. And then I see this other thing over here. I'll go do that thing. And, and there sort of was lacking a through line. And what I am kind of hearing in what you're saying is this idea of, you know, you and, and really, as, as I understand your approach is using your audience as the through line, like building continuity with it, with a group of people you want to serve over time. Yeah, no, I think you, you, you summed that up perfectly. And continuity is such a, a really interesting word. I think about continuity a lot in the community building space as often a missing piece. People do community building where, you know, there are individual events or instances of bringing people together for a specific period of time with a very specific purpose, but nothing happens in between. And without that thing happening in between, there is no continuity. I think people mistake the events as the community. The events are the on-ramp. The continuity is the community, right? The fact that people have the desire to continue coming together when the event is over and before the next one begins is the opportunity to create platform for people to come together to serve one another. And that's what's at the heart of community. And to draw the connection between that and business, I think is really astute because it's the same thing where products are the on-ramp. You know, which products? I mean, I think another thing that's kind of confusing about the stair step approach and and even frankly what we teach and you know Nathan Barry has has talked about this as you know the ladder of wealth creation i think these are all complementary views of the same thing which is about building advantages based on where you are now with what you have now so that you can then use those new advantages with new information to build the next set of new advantages. Where things go haywire, I think, is when people do take a frenetic approach and they build a thing and it's doing even kind of well and they go, cool, that's doing well, now I'll go do the thing. And they throw away the advantages they just built in the last step to create something new, or maybe not, maybe not all the advantages, maybe they just throw away some of them. So, you know, to create a, a, your first successful product or like, let's rescale product, like to create a blog post that people read and share, right? To create a podcast episode that people commit an hour plus of their time and talk to a colleague about it. And then that colleague wants to listen to it. Like those are products too, to have done all of that work and succeeded and now built an advantage. And the advantage in this case, I'll say is trust. They received the thing that you gave them and they got something out of it. And now they trust you to be able to do that again, to not leverage the trust that you built with that even that one person, I think, kind of misses misses the whole arc. So yeah, continuity is the audience for sure. And the beautiful thing is, is people, I think, a lot of times get worried is like, oh, if I pick an audience, I'm then trapped in that audience forever. And I always try to remind folks like, no, 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 audience is, is a maybe deceptive term because it sounds like a really concrete thing and it's not. It's a group of people who have a thing in common. And that's about it. And the beautiful thing about a group of people who have a thing in common is there's a good chance those people have more than one thing in common. And there's a good chance that they are connected to other people who have groups of things in common. So it's it's just a way in, right? And so rather than the sort of frenetic hopping from, you know, island to distant island, I think you can build much shorter bridges to navigate. I and mean, even just a concrete example, like Amy and I 
even before Amy and I started working together, Amy was mostly building an audience and serving fellow software designers and developers like herself. And we still have audience members to this day that know her from, you know, Ruby on Rails cheat sheets that she made in 2006, which is in itself, I think, a testament to what you're describing as continuity. Those same people that were interested in Ruby on Rails eventually became interested in business, right? Same person, new interests. We contain multitudes. And that is both at any given moment (laughs) and over time. So again, I think it's build trust with the people you are best suited to reach, recognizing that the more you learn about them, the more you connect with them, they will grow just as you will. And you will have opportunities that you can only have by having that sort of long-term investment and relationship with that audience to then navigate and say, okay, we've spent the last several years focused on helping people start a business. Now I've got a bunch of people that have started businesses. They've got a whole new set of problems. Which of those are problems that we can help them solve? Or we've got people who are, you know, they built a business and now they're looking for their next, you know, maybe they even sold the business. Again, I'm not anti-selling businesses. It's like, that's absolutely an option. And now they're trying to figure out what to do next with their newfound resources. You know, Amy's channeled a lot of her her energy into activism, right? You know, we have audience members who have probably followed the entire through line of Rails Cheats Cheats to how to start, how to ship products, to how to build a business, to how to be actively engaged in politics. Like, that's not an obvious path even really in hindsight, but I've absolutely seen it, (laughs) you know, and all it does is serve to deepen the relationships. When the Black Lives Matter protests ramped up in in, in June and we were sitting down and going, "What, what is our responsibility here? And that's a big, complicated question and, you know, a career's worth of answering to be done. But one of the things that we saw as a result of making that choice, which was not just to do a thing, but to also model behavior and encourage our peers to do the same, was that people saw it and that deepened the relationship between us. And what is that bias? I don't know. I don't need to know. I just know that that relationship will be able to be turned into something more valuable in the future when the pieces come together. I'm so glad you said that. So let's let's make this try to make this a little bit more concrete for people. So we had this idea of the the sort of the north star directionality and that idea of having this purposeful through line. And then there's this idea and and using that as direction but not a not plan. And then we've got this idea of continuity over time and then starting where you are, building from there and using that almost like your your, your stepping stones into the future. So let's let's take a concrete example. And I'll, let's just because it's top of mind, we'll do if we if you don't mind, we'll do a selfish one from my own thinking. So I think like many people, I have lots of different ideas all the time for different businesses and different products and whatever. And I know from my own entrepreneurial training that that is not the right place to start. The right place to start is with the customer, right? And so let's let's see if we can break this down. So like, for example, a recent idea I was having was about, oh, I do product development work. So I have I have a deep experience as a, like a product manager and a product leader, particularly in the like tech innovation space. So at the sort of bleeding edge of technology and figuring out like, okay, like, is that even possible? How do we do it? Sort of Google X type stuff. And as a, as a team leader and manager. So like those are sort of the, my probably my three starting points of in terms of like audiences I can connect with. So 
that's that's a starting point in terms of okay those are people i can relate to and serve from my own lived experience okay cool so then long term view i'm i have this really abstract idea about trying to change you know help shift the status quo of business in america like you also are so we share that that long term goal so how do i connect these dots like how do i you know and then i have this idea in the middle which is like oh okay i see an opportunity maybe for building tooling that can help people track the changes in technology trends in the world to help them make better products that are at the bleeding edge of what is just now possible. That's definitely not validated, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we put all this together? So let's start there in the middle of that where you're like, there's this thing that I could make, which is like the trap of somebody with the skills to make a thing. The, the, and, and I'm not here to judge whether that thing is a good thing or a bad thing or a good idea or a bad idea or if it would be successful. I can't know. Neither can you. That's the point. Yeah. One analogy for this really quick that I'm curious if this tracks with it is that like starting a new business or product, it's like building a puzzle, but at the beginning you don't have all the pieces and you don't have the picture on the box and you have to figure both of those out as you go. I think I actually, I have an essay somewhere. If it wasn't an essay, I I used that analogy in a workshop around community building as well, which was community building is one where you have to figure out the, the picture on the box, except the picture on the box is not your picture on the box. It's their picture on the box. So you have to kind of assemble it from, from, the people in the community. And I think that's actually part of the answer. The picture on the box is not going to come from inside of you. It will include your insights, your lived experiences, and you will be able to use the relationships and the relatability to connect into the communities that it can help. But the starting part is getting to those people and not getting to those people with your idea, but getting to those people with with and through a lens of where they are, both like physically, not necessarily like physical in the world, but like where are they, where do they gather, what do they talk about, what are their, you know, what are their hopes, dreams, aspirations, but also what are the immediate problems that they are feeling right now? And how can you help them with those immediate problems they have right now? And that might seem like such a really long, like maybe impossible arc from that to having world-changing impact on an industry like you aspire to. But A, that's what we're talking about. The long game of business is being willing to say, it might take me 10 years to get there, but it'll be worth it. And if I get there in five, that's even better. If I get there in three, incredible. And that might be because I made some good choices. It might be because of luck. It might be, yeah, who, again, you can't know. All you can do is position yourself in that direction and, and, and keep going. So the starting point I think we've seen over and over is embedding yourself in communities that you already belong to and being ruthlessly helpful and generous in public. And that does two things. And it's a, it's a really important two-directional street. One is it shows you investing first, right? It shows you giving whatever it is that you have. But there's a nuance to it that I think is really important. And people show up wanting to give their advice, their perspective, their point of view without having earned the ability for the audience to care what their advice, perspective, or point of view really is. So you kind of have to go one step earlier, which is meeting people where they are. One of the things that Amy and I teach as part of the flagship course that we teach, 30 by 500, is worldview as sort of an alternative to niche. When people are trying to figure out who to talk to, who their audience is, the word niche shows up or niche, whichever one's right. But we, the world may never know. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a tensor <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so what, however you pronounce that word, it doesn't matter because it's the wrong goal anyway. What is more, what is actually, because you can't really do anything with it. What is a niche but an abstract human brain made up categorization? And then what do you do with it, right? How do you use a niche? Right. At best, you can use it to say, you know, well, this is the, you know, the forums or lists those people participate in. This is the keywords they use. And that is useful. But the, the, like the real value, this is both the hardest, but also the most powerful layer is understanding their worldview, how they perceive the world, which includes how they perceive problems they're experiencing, how they perceive their ability to affect those problems and how they perceive solutions in terms of packaging delivery, their ability to execute it. And to get really concrete, this is the difference between Apple and Android, right? It's the person who wants a thing that is really, really easy to use, out of the box, just works, kind of anticipates what I want to do versus the Android, someone who wants to tweak and tune it to the way they want it to work, right? Those are two distinctly different worldviews. They are both potentially right for the person and has created the opportunity for Apple and Android to coexist and just create holy wars on the internet between those people who do not share that worldview. And I think if you go into the communities you're a part of with, with two specific goals, one is to find people talking about the challenges they're experiencing and try to understand how they perceive those problems before you start offering solutions everything changes. And again, to back to continuity, like that's a, 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 a lens that can be practiced like a muscle. And when you do get to a point where you're creating tools and products and solutions, I, I think and I hope you can see how that would shift the products that you create. Because even if you do observe that people really want to create cutting edge, bleeding edge technology and tools for their customers, the way they perceive that, the way they perceive the ability to figure out what that is, is there, A, there's going to be more than one answer to that. Which ones you're able to reach, like if the people who want to use big data to figure that out exist, but you have no way of reaching them, I've got bad news for you. It's going to be very expensive for you to try and sell that product to that person. But if you're trying to reach the people who want to go through ethnographic research, and those are people who you can reach, then that's a completely different product. It doesn't mean you can't build software to do it, but you see the difference both. I mean, it's two completely different products. Or even if within the world of, you know, using big data, there's multiple worldviews inside of that that can result in different products. So all of this I think is maybe if you look at it as sort of like a fractal, like a fractal just tree of understanding that all starts with the core of where do you find these people? How do, therefore, how do you reach them? How, what problems do they talk about? And through what worldview do they tend to perceive those problems? That gives you fuel to start creating basically immediately. Like I said, create blog posts, podcast episodes, video tutorials, whatever it is you want to put it on the internet. And that becomes your, I think that's better than any validation out there, right? Because validation starts with my idea, is this what you want? Versus the notion of you told me that you had this problem. Does this look like I understood the problem correctly? Very quickly, very cheaply. And if you're wrong, you've now got a feedback loop to figure it out versus I came up with this idea that you random person on the internet with all infinite biases and how much do you really care about me is going to give me some feedback on how reliable is that feedback? How much feedback do I need in order to know whether or not it's trustworthy? Like all of that data is really, really difficult to process. But if you can find one person who's having a problem, you understand 
how they're experiencing that problem and you offer them something that can help them that they're actually going to use and try and you do that over and over and over and over, you will end up with and faster than you probably think is possible, a group of people who know that you exist and trust your way of looking at problem solving and maybe most importantly, are going to want more. And that's the feedback loop that you can continue through getting those people on a newsletter that you can send them the latest, you know, so-and-so sent in this question. Here's how I think about that. If that's helpful for you, awesome. Do you have a question of your own? And you can see how that can grow. But it's got to, it doesn't start inside you. It starts out there. The hard part, I think, as, as your work grows, as your product evolves, as your business evolves, and even as your audience grows is it's easy to get kind of lazy and insular and not be out there in the real world because you've got, you know, a few thousand people to several thousand people, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that you can easily reach. I'm just going to listen to those folks. You should listen to and interact with those folks. But the the longer you stay insulated from the rest of the world, the longer you, or I should say the harder it is to get back into the real world as well. Try and put that all together. So I have this sort of long, long range intention that God knows all the different ways that will show up in, and I will pursue that goal, uh, that aspiration, but start where I am now, which is with these groups of people, these, these audiences that I can relate to, meet them where they are from a place of generosity, understand what they're dealing with, their worldview, et cetera, build trust with them by helping them with those things and learn their problems and things like that. And if I do have a specific idea, like some tool to help them do X, Y, Z, that's fine. Or, or maybe it's like, if you do have that idea, set the idea aside for the moment and say, who has that problem? And then go spend time with that person. I want to shift gears a little bit into some of the specific ideas from the book that are you know, useful, I think, for, for someone trying to build a company or a division for the long game. And that I pulled out that I wanted to have you expand on a little bit. One of them in particular was this idea of, I'm going to call it thinking like an owner. And so there's a couple of places in there where you talk about different mechanisms that business leaders or, or business owners can can employ to help foster that sense of ownership in the people that in their organization, you know, whether that's like profit sharing or equity arrangements, things like that. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Like, what are the mechanisms that business leaders can use to, you know, foster that type of ownership thinking and long term thinking for people who are not them? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the lowest hanging fruit here is at the root of this word that is, I, th- I think I've heard it more in the last, I mean, in the last 60 days than I have in the rest of my career, which is inclusion, which is being proactive about who's at the table for conversations and the decision making. And I think because of all the ways we're taught management, leadership, learning and work in this sort of like factory mode, right? So like, you know, it, st- it starts with school. We go to schools who teach us how to be factory workers and then end up in these sort of either physical factories or knowledge factories as they were, where people are are intentionally and strategically siloed, not just in their jobs, but also in terms of decision making. And I think the decision making is really where things get interesting and it costs basically nothing. So before we even get into things like, you know, profit sharing and, and, and monetary incentives, which I think are valuable and important and often underexplored, I think that being intentional about including more people from the organization in decision making than especially like bigger high level decision making than you, than you might think especially because those folks in your organization have they may not have the boots on the ground in the same place that you do they may not have the same perspective that you do but that's kind of the point right they have the boots on the ground somewhere they have a lived experience somewhere and i think where folks get maybe maybe confused is 
when they think that everything that they hear, they need to do, right? If we get more people from the organization, from the business involved in the decision making, I can't move as quickly and I'm going to have to do all of those things. And neither of those things are true. I mean, you can't move as quickly might be true, but I'd I'd say that might be a good thing instead of a bad thing. I think giving yourself a moment to pause is a lesson worth trying at the very least and seeing what happens. But one of the, the things that I've learned over and over and over with Indie Hall as this sort of unique organization that is not a cooperative, it's not a representative democracy. I am the business owner and I have a very tiny team who helps on the operational side, but we've got hundreds of members. The thing I've learned over and over is giving people an opportunity to give their perspective, make a suggestion, doesn't mean you have to do it. What it does do is if you think it's a good idea, but it's not going to be your number one priority, A, you can say that. B, you can then deputize them to go out and do it. And now you're giving them ownership, not only of creating the idea, but over the execution. And so with Indie Hall, one of my favorite lines, my team has learned this to the point where members now, I don't want to say do it to each other, but use it in dialogue, which is, that's a great idea. What can I do to help you do that? And it's this little like kung fu move where you're catching the punch and redirecting it in a way that says, and it's not placing the burden on them. It's creating an opportunity for them because I am here. The subtext, and in some cases, the actual text is, I will give you every resource I know how to give you in order to make this possible. But I want you to have ownership over it. I think the hard part of this is then calibrating expectations and you know what happens if that thing becomes successful. But I think those are all really good problems to have and bridges worth crossing. So long as you have that open dialogue as part of the next steps after providing that opportunity. It's like, it's not, yo, go do this thing. It's yours now. It's, we're doing this together. We're going to co-create this, but you get ownership over it. I think is the easiest thing that people can learn how to do. Can And the beautiful thing about it is it then, start, it's, again, it's about modeling behavior. If you have one team member go through that experience, take ownership of it, start earning you know, credibility, opportunities, growth. Other people in the organization are going to see that too and go, hey, wait a second, I got idea. And, and and now what do you have? Now you've got people coming to you with great ideas. Again, not all of them need to be great ideas. Some of them can be good ideas. Like, yeah, you know, here, try it out. Maybe I'll sit down with you for 30 minutes and we'll frame it down to like, what is the smallest, simplest version of this to get it going? But now it's yours to get going. The absolute worst case scenario is there. there is an actual no. And even in that case, I, I don't think it needs to be a no. Instead, it's an, a learning opportunity for you as the business owner, but also them as the teammate, for you to externalize why it's a no. And maybe more importantly, here's what it would take to be a yes. We don't have budget for that is not a useful response. There's not budget for that, but here's how we put together budgets. Or would you like to come to the next budget meeting so you can see how budgets work? Or it doesn't look to me like it has a thing that would allow it to pay for itself. But if you want to figure out a way that it can become a sound investment, here's what it like. Basically, it needs to have that built in from the start. If again, if that's the particular constraint. So turning your nose into here's what it needs to be to become a yes has allowed us to empower so many community members to learn how we make decisions. So the next time they come to us, the decision is better formed than before because we taught them a little bit about what it takes for us to make something be a yes. So I want to start to uh, shift gears and kind of close out here with some rapid fire questions. First one is, what is a quote or a saying that's important to you? And what about it speaks to you? The, the one that comes to mind is one from the book, but I'm also hesitating. Like, I don't want to plug something from the book here. So the quote that comes to mind is both a quote and a very short 
article from Derek Sivers that I think the full article is at sivers.org slash obvious. But the quote is, obvious to you, amazing to others. And the reason I think that I think about that quote a lot and I, I reference it pretty often is it is really easy to overestimate the mundanity of something that we're experiencing because we have experienced it for somebody else who is observing it from the outside to see themselves in it, right? So it's not even about giving the advice. It's just about creating that relatability. And I think folks are really quick to try to impress people rather than relate. And I, I think when in doing that, you skip over obvious, but or I should say seemingly obvious to you, but often amazing, impactful, deeply connecting points of view that can shape or grow the person on the receiving end. The other sort of related quote that as I was sort of saying that out loud makes me think of is the danger of comparing your insides to other people's outsides, which you can sort of see how those are connected. People, we do this ourselves and other people are doing it. So and there's a mindfulness of like how we put ourselves out into the world is always going to be incomplete, but that incompleteness is how we're going to be perceived, which is not something we're in control of to take this back to the beginning of our conversation. So just like do that and know that and be mindful about it. But also that's a two-way street is that when we're perceiving other people and comparing their experiences as we observe them and maybe feeling bad about ourselves or good about ourselves and smug, like how much better at it we are. There's so much that we don't know. So I think it's just really valuable to keep the, that, the incongruence of those two perspectives as reality and just keep them in mind. Underneath everything we're talking about here, there's obviously a set of beliefs, worldviews, to use that term, mindsets. What is a mindset shift that has really helped you? Where did you get really stuck and what was the mindset shift that got you out of it? Oh, I've got a good one. And it's recent. I started working with a management coach earlier this year because for every bit of practice and skill that I have as a leader, I am a garbage manager. (laughs) And he just highlights how different those two things are. And part of that is because I manage the way I wish to be managed, which is basically not at all. And for most people, that doesn't work. So I started working with somebody. She's been amazing in a lot of ways super, super helpful. We went through an exercise early on in working together where she had me break down the reasons why I don't delegate things. It is not an easy thing. It does not come naturally. And when there are stakes for that delegation or when it is your idea that you were then delegating, like when it's somebody else's idea, delegating it to them is infinitely easier because my stakes in that thing are exactly where as much as I want them to be. When it's my thing and I'm trying to delegate my thing, Goodness gracious, that is difficult. And Kara kind of forced me to unpack that. And I was, if I'm being totally honest, kind of upset with myself for as much as I can go on and on about trust and the importance of trust in a team at how many things came down to me not trusting that somebody else can do the job, even though I know that they can, right? And that cognitive dissonance was really, really hard to reckon with. People who I know and I love and I and I do trust, for some reason, there was a facet of that trust that was missing. And I wasn't really grappling with that. I wasn't acknowledging that. And so I was keeping things from them, which 
the the problem there is twofold. It's bad for me because I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing. There's other other maybe more important, more valuable things I should be doing. But I'm also robbing them of the opportunity to grow and even make a mistake doing it a different way than I wanted to. But even within that is a broken mindset, which is why is them making a mistake the only way for them to do it differently than me? What if they did it differently than me and it was better? Am I afraid of that? I don't know. That's scary to think about. But it like that that seemingly simple question of like, why aren't you delegating certain things that you know you should went down this really, really strange, I was about to say wonderful. It wasn't wonderful. Strange rabbit hole of self-exploration and going, well, shit, I'm not being totally honest about what it means to trust somebody. I got to work on that was was hard and humbling and a work in progress. And I imagine it will continue to be a work in progress, but definitely a pretty intense mindset shift that I don't think I could have done on my own. Thank you for sharing that. As I was sitting with all the ideas we were talking about earlier, I, I was feeling like this sense of like clenching in my stomach. And I was like, okay, what is that? I think that one of the other mindset shifts that might be at play here is a letting go of the or trying to let go of the need for certainty, going back to that idea of control and how it, what an illusion it is, right? Like you thinking about these long games of business and the long arc we're, we're talking about here, the reality is we don't know how it's going to play out. We don't know where it's going to go. I think on some level, we just hate that idea. We absolutely do. What's interesting is like, without wandering too far down down this path, the neuropsychology of uncertainty, I think tracks back the evolutionary version of it anyway, evolved from you know, at a certain point, uncertainty meant death, right? It meant not having enough food to survive the winter. It meant not having the right protection or weapons to not be eaten by a predator. And we have the same biological response to the uncertainties that are much smaller and far less threatening, at least existentially. It's the same damn chemicals that get released in our brain. And our brain doesn't really know the difference how to calibrate. So our evolved response of that pit in our stomach, the, the, the dump of cortisol that makes us physically feel that way, or I should say those ways, it, it's more than one thing. The, is very, and this goes back to that separating facts from feelings. You're feeling that way for a reason. It's because there is uncertainty. But the uncertainty is not potentially life-threatening. The uncertainty is uncertainty. And it's just uncertainty. And if you can verify that is I am afraid of something because I don't know what's going to happen, but the odds of me doing harm to myself or somebody else are near zero, then it's just uncertainty. And if I do it, I will learn that uncertainty and and danger are not the same thing. I think I need to practice that a lot too. What is a small change you've made in recent memory that's had a big impact? Like of all the changes I'm thinking of are really big because quarantine, um, a small change. (laughs) So during quarantine within the Indie Hall community, people have a lot of feelings and those feelings run a a really wide set of range, you know, ranges from the doom diving of whatever potentially horrible thing is happening somewhere else in the world or in our own backyard on any given day to the opposite of that, actively seeking safe places to have meaningful conversations that aren't necessarily direct, directly related to whatever chaos is happening in the world and everything in between. I should say I'm super proud of the way the Indie Hall community has sort of stepped up to that whole range of challenges and treats one another with respect. I think we're, we're showing precisely what we spent 15 years preparing for right now. The small change, I would say, is 
it's less of a directional change and more of a incremental change in a direction I was already going, which is to fight the resistance to be involved in every conversation and just kind of let some things play out. And as someone who cares and cares deeply about other people, that's hard. As someone who also doesn't want to be perceived as negligent, it's hard, but I've found two things to be useful. One is my overall sense of calm is much stronger. My sense of the community is hurting. I need to take care of the community. Tough thing to fight up against. But maybe more importantly, again, it kind of gives the gives this group of adults <laughs> the, the room to really exercise what they have been practicing. And so I think it's been beneficial for, for a lot of folks. The through line of that is it does raise a new question is when part of my role as a leader has been to guide challenging conversations and I'm taking an active step to maybe not jump in as quickly and realize that there will still be times for me to guide conversations, but folks are now in a spot where they can guide, guide each other a bit better. What does that create space for me to do? How does that reshape and redefine my role? How does that shape, reshape and redefine Indy Hall? I don't know. It's not a directional change, which maybe is a little bit different from, from the question you're asking, but it's a definitely an, an incremental change in a direction that I think we were already heading that I feel like already seeing, like, I'm not sure I would have done it if we weren't in this situation where we kind of do need to be a little more thoughtful and intentional about where we put our energy into solving other people's problems. It goes back to that, you know, the endurance race that we signed up for. We don't know how long we're running. And the act of self-preservation is an act of love and support of the community because it means that I can remain available to them when they really need it. That's a potentially complicated long view way of looking at that environment, but one that I've already sort of seen play out. And as I think about the long view of our work, Indie Hall and beyond, like we've got 10 year aspirations of growing into more of a, an organization that in addition to all the things that we do and have done is, you know, supporting people in career development, career growth, business creation, business growth, and all these things throughout the region. The things we want to do are a lot bigger than and a lot bigger than anything we've ever done. I'm going to need to get good at delegating. I'm going to need to get good at making sure that I'm giving the right amount of energy instead of 100% every time, because not everything needs 100%. There are some things that always need 100%, but a lot of things don't need 100%. They need the right amount and then the handoff to make sure that everything has the support that it needs. I feel like the environment now is is sort of practice for an environment that is it doesn't exist yet, and I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know is going to be important. So the practice and maybe the little bit of pain of the practice now will, will hopefully be worth it. First of all, Alex, I just say thank you so much for being here today. It is an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to get to spend some time in your world. What do you want to leave the audience with? Any What requests do you have of the listener or what idea would you want to uh, to leave our listeners with? So one of my goals with the book, and this is not a pitch to go by the book. Frankly, you can go read any review on it. And one of the things I'm loving about the reviews is people are pulling out their favorite bits and bites from the book. So if you want to go read 100 blog posts, you can probably pull together the entire book. I would love for folks to take a little bit of time to to sit with the lesson and and maybe don't not, not so much like I don't care so much what you think about the lesson. I care about how the lesson made you feel. Um and if you can use, again, the book or the reviews or anything that we've talked about as 
a opportunity to practice how a piece of information makes you feel and process the, that feeling and that makes you think a thing or make a decision. Those are the things that I would really love to hear about. And even if I don't hear about it, I'm just hopeful that 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 you can have that practice. If it does do something for you, I would love to hear it. And if it means you do something and there's some sort of impactful outcome, you made a career shift, you started a business, you grew a business, you had a conversation with your team, you had a conversation with your prospective customers, whatever. Like if you went and did a thing, those are the stories that I really love to hear. Waking up to, to get an email from somebody telling me about what they did is so much more interesting to me than them telling me what I wrote. I know what I wrote. I care about what you're going to do with it. So hit me up and let me know what happens next. Fantastic. Alex, thanks so much for being here. An absolute pleasure. Thanks, man. I appreciate you being here. And for your insightful way of pulling things apart, I was really cool to sort of weave this through the original thread that you started with of our, our shared interest in, in Buddhist teachings. Uh, did not exactly see that coming, but I'm really, really stoked for, for what it allowed us to explore. Yeah, me too. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up.